the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Good afternoon, Northern California. Welcome. Just about five minutes after the hour, 5 p.m., as we welcome you to another edition of Lifeline. Keeping you company Monday through Friday at this time, as we typically do, addressing issues that impact your life, your world, and your Christian walk. Amongst all of the issues that are troubling Americans today, and it's a laundry list, terrorism, the economy, unemployment, housing, education, you know what I find interesting? That the number one reported concern amongst residents of the state of New Hampshire is substance abuse. Isn't that interesting? Substance abuse, their number one concern, apparently rampant, taking place, uh, particularly amongst kids. And of course, when we talk about abuse and addictive behavior, uh, it, it comes in a very broad variety of forms. If I talk to you about addiction, I think a lot of our minds immediately have a picture in our mind of either the hobo on the street that has the alcohol addiction problem or maybe the individual that's, that's dealing with drugs and has a drug addiction problem. But growing percentages of Americans, in addition to dealing with sort of the traditional addiction, so to speak, have a variety of other addictions. And it can be as broad as not just illegal drug addiction, but legal or prescription drug addiction. Then you move into other categories. You think about it from a biblical perspective. There are people that are addicted to food, people that can be addicted to spending, gambling, things of that sort. As we talk about the broad level of addiction and addictive behavior in America today, and by the way, 30% of Americans, one out of three of us, struggles with a form of addiction of one sort or another, you would think perhaps the best place for these people to go would be the church. The church could help them address their addictive behavior. I mean, after all, doesn't the Bible talk about all these topics? Well, it certainly does. And yet, sadly, the church seems to be ill-equipped. It, it almost acts as if we're sort of out of sorts on this topic. And so we feel as if, well, if you come to us with an addictive behavior, we immediately need to give you a referral to AA, uh, Narcotics Anonymous, something of that sort. But could we change the face of addiction if we changed our attitudes about what addiction is within the church. To get some insights now, Jonathan Benz joins us. Jonathan is a clinician. He is a certified professional who serves the recovery community. He is the author of a new book called The Recovery-Minded Church, Loving and Ministering to People with Addiction. And Jonathan, thanks so much for taking time to be with us today. Thank you for having me, Craig. What about this observation? From your perspective, is that a fairly legitimate claim to say that largely the church seems to be kind of awkward at dealing with this topic? I think your comments are spot on, and that's certainly my experience. Uh, having uh, 
been blessed enough to, to be to have been raised in a home and a congregation that was remarkably recovery friendly when I started going out on my own and doing uh, both clinical work and work in the church, discovering that while for decades uh, churches have allowed AA and NA meetings to take place in basements and fellowship halls, most of those people who go to those meetings uh, would not grace the doors of the church for any form of worship or, or participation in Christian community. And I think that's largely due to the shame and the stigma that oftentimes addiction carries in the church world. But that's odd, because as I delineated, you know, when we think of addiction, let's let's apply the the more broad definition to it than what seems to be kind of the, the, the narrow traditional approach. Most people, if you say addiction and, and do a word association game, will, you know, say alcohol, drugs, things of that sort. And yet, as we know, both from a scriptural standpoint as well as a clinical standpoint, that there can be all kinds of other are dangerous, addictive behaviors. I mean, there there are uh, ministries now that are dedicated to do nothing but helping people, for example, that struggle with uh, sexual addictions uh, or gambling addiction. So it would seem to me that, that given the broad nature of this behavior and the fact that <laughs> the Scripture has an awful lot to say about all of them, that if there's any place where we ought to feel welcome, if it were an, an addict ought to feel welcome, it ought to be within, within the church. Well, and one would hope. Uh, You know, it's interesting that the American Society of Addiction Medicine defines addiction as a chronic disease of brain reward, motivation, memory, and circuitry. And when the medical community defines addiction, drugs, alcohol, gambling, those things are not mentioned. Those are but symptoms of something else that's going on. So we know that there's something that's happening physiologically in the brain of the individual, and I think sometimes... That's the part that uh, we in the church community uh, don't get or don't fully understand. Uh, We think that addiction is something that can be prayed away. And while certainly uh, I believe prayer helps in some form of prayer and meditation, we know through science now definitely helps the brain heal, uh, it takes more than just prayer and Bible study for a person to heal and recover. Uh, it takes some form of medical treatment as well. To a certain degree, then, are some of those behaviors, uh, let's take alcohol. Now, we know certainly there's a physiological aspect to that addictive behavior, drugs too. Uh, but but to a great degree, is that oftentimes, and as I think you're suggesting, Jonathan, symptomatic of something deeper going on? Uh, oftentimes, uh, addiction experts will say drugs and alcohol are but a symptom or uh, sexual compulsivity is a symptom of something deeper going on. Now, we, we do know in the case of alcoholism, science tells us that there's a genetic marker for alcoholism. And, you know, we don't quite know if there's a genetic marker for sex addiction yet. Maybe we'll find at some point that there is. But uh, sometimes it's a chicken or egg uh, discussion, you know, which came first. And I often say it doesn't matter whether uh, something of trauma happened that got the person into addiction or they had a genetic marker that led them into addiction. Uh, we we got to treat it. And when we want to treat more than just the symptoms, we want to treat the deeper issues of the psyche or within the Christian context, we would say the soul or the spirit. Now, the church, of course, would typically look at many of these on that laundry list that we mentioned a moment ago and say that, well, the answer, of course, is Christ. And we can help an individual by leading he or she to saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. 
And once they start attending church, going to Bible study, things of this sort, that uh, most naturally then that that life-changing experience, that encounter with Christ, should then address the underlying issues regarding their addiction. And so once they've been able to then, um, through a process of prayer and counseling, things of this sort, overcome that addiction, that they should be done. In other words, there should be no need for ongoing uh, recovery workshops or things of this sort. We oftentimes even hear something, well, people, you know, that once they get through their addictive behavior, then they get addicted to recovery. Is there something wrong with that approach? Well, I, I think if we take that approach, then we should do the same uh, with other diseases, with other disease states. We certainly would never tell the cancer patient to stop her chemotherapy, or we would never tell a diabetic to, to stop uh, his insulin or watching his sugar levels. Uh, we know that there are certain disease states that are chronic, and apart from some kind of miraculous uh, touch or, or miracle of science, the person will continue to have to treat that for the rest of their lives. Uh, so, uh, you know, some people, uh, they struggle and they say, well, it's a sin to be an alcoholic. Well, if that's the case, then perhaps it's a sin to be a diabetic. Uh, you know, we don't stigmatize people who suffer from other disease states that are often characterized by relapse. Um, yet with addiction, we, it is one of the most undertreated uh, issues in our country and one of the most deadly. And I, I think the beauty of the church, uh, when the church wakes up to the realization that, yes, we hold a lot of answers for spiritual healing, for psychological healing, when we practice that with good medicine, that a person can really uh, increase their chances of finding a life that is happy, joyous, and free, as the big book says. Uh, I think when we, when we really grab hold of that, we can begin to see greater transformation in people's lives in our congregations and also create an atmosphere where it's easier for people to talk about these issues that maybe they would be ashamed to even confess. Well, and maybe then, too, the approach needs to be with the understanding that an individual that is struggling with an addiction, while we kind of traditionally think it as an individual who's weak, who doesn't have the, the kind of um, will or uh, uh, um, ability with them to, to push themselves back from the table, the drug, the alcohol, whatever, but rather to recognize that in our fallen condition, we are vulnerable to sin. And it is a day-to-day struggle. I mean, if Paul had to struggle daily to die to the flesh, and I I think Paul, both in terms of of his encounter with Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus and the role that he played in the the early church, uh, probably a little little closer, a little deeper understanding uh, of these principles than just the average Christian out on the street who just casually reads Paul's writings, uh, that if we acknowledge the fact that it's a day-to-day struggle and that in and of ourselves we are powerless, but through Christ we can overcome this and, and recognize the fact that it's not necessarily just somebody who's got a weak character, but but rather it's part of the daily struggle to the flesh. Maybe then this sort of stigma that's attached to addictive behavior by the church would be less so, and as a result, people would be more willing to find the kind of help they need within both Scripture and the church. I, I would concur, and you know, I would go on to say uh, I would go on to say what I'm not saying, and what I'm not saying is that there are not uh, what we would call sinful consequences of addiction. So if if the mother, uh, you know, needs a handle of vodka because she's alcoholic and she drives to the liquor store 
and she leaves her child in the hot car in the car seat uh, and turns the car off uh, to go in to get her alcohol and, and the child dies, is that a sin? Definitely there are what we would call within the Christian context sinful consequences or definitely harmful behaviors, destructive behavioral patterns. Uh, but, but I think we have to reframe the conversation, as you're saying, to say, yes, we know that there are these behaviors, there are, pattern, there are patterns of behaviors, and that really uh, there are principles, spiritual principles in the scriptures that can help you break free from those destructive behavioral patterns that actually propagate the addictive cycle in your life. Jonathan Benz is with us tonight. We're talking about the recovery-minded church, loving and ministering to people with addiction. We'll take a brief time out to come back to more of the conversation as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, we are back with a pretty tight schedule tonight, but we'll see if we can't uh, jump a caller here or two or Jonathan Benz. His new book is called The Recovery-Minded Church, Loving and Ministering to People with Addiction, newly released, by the way, by InterVarsity Press. You can get it at bookstores around the Bay Area, of course, through uh, therecoveryplace.com. Uh, Jonathan, let's talk some specifics. When we talk about ways in which the church can do a better job, aside from simply saying, let's open up the church basement and allow AA to hold meetings there, what, from your perspective, do you think the body of Christ can be doing that will create the kind of environment that will allow addicts to feel welcome, number one, inside the church? And then what kind of tools do we need to be equipped with in order to really adequately and and, and appropriately minister to them? Well, I think education is a great place to start. Uh, if, if there are, uh, for example, lay leaders in the congregation who have uh, this kind of passion or who have a particular compassion for people struggling with some kind of addiction, uh, just getting good information uh, and changing the tenor of the conversation within the spiritual community helps. Um, I think being clear that in, in saying and intentional in our message and saying, hey, we want you here. We don't have all the answers. But we're going to help you find the answers that you need, and we're going to journey with you and uh, be on this journey with you to find what you're looking for. And if we can't find it here, we're going to help you find it somewhere. Uh, I think that's what a lot of people are looking for uh, who are struggling with addiction. They don't know where to go. And so there are even practical things that congregations can do. One of the most practical things I say is have a list in your foyer or in your lobby of your church that is a list of uh, community resources not just numbers for the the AA intergroup, but also uh, therapists that you work with or believe in, or treatment centers or different options so that people can know that they don't have to do this on their own. Uh, and uh, oftentimes the best thing we can do is point them in the right direction if we don't have the answer. And, of course, the irony is, based on just some of the, the broad definitions that you've shared with us tonight, I think uh, many pastors would maybe uh, be surprised to find out that many of these so-called addicts are sitting in the church pews right now. Now, they, this may not be the guy that has, you know, the mainline heroin addiction or is, is you know, diving into a bottle of vodka every night, perhaps not at the extremes, but there's all kinds of, of signs of addictive behavior uh, that can have negative consequences on uh, your, certainly your spiritual health, your relationships with your spouse, your children, etc. So it would seem to me when you talk about 30% of Americans that deal with one degree of addiction or another, that a good percentage of them are already in the pews and this kind of addictive behavior years going unaddressed. 
But, you know, what, what about the woman who can't go to sleep at night without uh, her two milligram uh, Xanax, which on the streets is called a Xanny bar. Uh, but if you get it from the uh, pharmacist, it's called a two milligram tablet of Xanax. Or the man who has to take his oxycodone uh, to get to work and has to take it throughout the day because of his car wreck and he can't function without the painkillers. Uh, you know, these are very uh, powerful narcotics that our doctors prescribe and oftentimes we have people sitting in our pews who have become dependent on these uh, medications, these narcotic medications and can't get off and don't know where to turn. Is part of the, the first step here to start destigmatizing a lot of this? Because you say addiction, and that and that sounds like somebody has just got this uh, you know deep, dark, evil, ugly secret. And yet, you know, when we start to look at some of these definitions, we begin to realize that this is more widespread and more common than we realize. Uh, I think one of the places the church can start is to uh, really have a, an honest discussion about the difference between guilt and shame. And we like to say, you know, guilt, guilt is when I feel bad about what I did. But shame is when I feel bad about who I am. Now, if we believe what St. Paul wrote, as you said, that we are new creations in Christ, we are not bad. We are, we are good people who are struggling sometimes with some bad things. And so separating identity from behavior is very helpful in destigmatizing addiction. So saying to the person, you know, you might even want to say you're a person with addiction. I work with people who they can't handle that label of addict because it's too self-defeating for them. Other people are okay with it. Uh, you know, say, well, you're a person with alcoholism. You're a person whose drinking has taken over. Separating the behavior from actually who the person is uh, is what the church can help with in terms of the spiritual healing process. Sometimes, of course, the big challenge here is just coming to grips with the face of who we really are. You know, there's that mask that I think we not only put on in, in, in front of others, but sometimes even that, that mask is apparent in the mirror, isn't it? We kind of fool ourselves. Well, uh, we, we like denial, and I think it's human nature. Um, I think it's the ego. I think it's the sin nature of the flesh or whatever you want to call it. We like to think that uh, we're, we're doing okay, and sometimes it's hard to take an honest look in the mirror to say, uh, to really give an honest inventory of, of how, how I really am doing. Let's slip a caller or two here uh, real quick before the end of our conversation. We're going to jump over to Oakland and say good evening to Eleanor. Eleanor, come on in with your comment or question for Jonathan Benz. Hi, good evening, gentlemen. And first, I'd like to say I really am thankful that you're having this conversation. Um, I just have a comment and maybe a little bit of a question. My comment is that several years ago, I started a uh, substance abuse recovery ministry in my church. But first, before we actually got the group started, uh, we actually partnered with uh, our local mental health association and we actually got uh, professionals to come in and give us an overview about um, the pharmacology of addiction as well as the sociology of addiction. Once we got that information, 
I was able to talk with my pastor, get him on board with it, and actually um, the members of our recovery group came basically right out of our congregation as we began to do it more and more and months passed by we were able to even invite some of the family members of people who were uh, in recovery and we also use bible and we also use prayer and and um, just a number of different things so uh, how do you think about uh, churches partnering with other churches and partnering with other um uh, community uh, mental health associations. Some really good questions, and it sounds like you're doing some really good work there, too. Jonathan, what do you think? Eleanor, I love it. Yes, yes, and yes. That that was a great approach. Uh, well done in partnering and bringing in good information to the congregation and also working with your pastor. You know, oftentimes we don't deal with things in our churches until there's a felt need. So when there's a crisis, we then respond. Uh, and so including the leadership and saying, hey, uh, you know, we're not a, a silo here. We're not a reservoir. We're a river. And uh, we're going to allow the information and the healing to flow. And sometimes we got to partner with other people to provide optimal healing for our parishioners. And, you know, there's so many organizations out there that you can partner with that you don't have to sort of do all the heavy lifting and, you know, reinvent the wheels, so to speak. More and more churches, for example, are are discovering uh, the ministry of Celebrate Recovery. Uh, and, and that has been exploding, perhaps not as fast as we'd love to see, but that's been exploding across the country. So this idea of whether you're partnering with another congregation or, or taking advantage of some of the resources, as uh, Eleanor just mentioned, that, that already exist to say, hey, what can we do to be more effective in our local ministry? And I love the fact that they recognize, gee, we've got some folks right here in our congregation that are already struggling. Mm-hmm. Thank you. We appreciate the call tonight, Eleanor. Uh, Jonathan, I know we've just kind of scratched the surface here this evening, but for for others out there that are eavesdropping on the conversation, heard what you've had to share, heard what the caller just had to share, where would you recommend they take some, some important first steps? Well, I think we have to ask. Now, I always tell people, be careful who you tell your story to. Not everyone has earned the right to hear your story. So when you go for help, make sure that you're going to someone who you are somewhat confident that they can help point you in the right direction if they don't have the answers themselves. So hopefully your your pastor or an elder in the congregation or a lay leader or a therapist or someone in the community, uh, you know, but first you have to ask. Uh, and that, that's what we all have to do. When we're recognizing that we have a problem, we have to ask for help. If we don't ask for help, We'll never uh, get the help that we need, that we so desperately need. And, of course, in terms of resources, I mentioned Celebrate Recovery, and also a copy of Jonathan's new book might be very helpful to you, too. It's called The Recovery-Minded Church, Loving and Ministering to People with Addiction, newly published by InterVarsity. You can get it on uh, the web, of course, the usual suspects, Amazon.com, local uh, bookstores, and RecoveryPlace.com. That's RecoveryPlace.com. And our thanks to Jonathan Benz for being with us on this segment of Lifeline. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. If you know someone that has questions or struggles with the Trinity, the Godhead, 
Maybe you yourself have often wondered, well, where exactly is this taught in Scripture? How do I, how do I figure out what this triune God is? And you want to hop on the phone? I'll even give you a special dispensation, provided you pull off the road to text somebody and tell them to tune in to AM 1100 KFAX or log on right now, no matter where they're at in the world, at KFAX.com, because we're going to break down some serious answers right out of God's Word. Presenting Biblical Propositions Supporting the Trinity. And joining me tonight in studio is a familiar voice to KFAX listeners. Also, I might add, a, a very dear friend. He serves as an adjunct professor at Golden Gate Theological Seminary. He is a pastor of a Tiburon Christian Church up in the, the North Bay. And is host of Contending for the Faith, heard Saturday evenings at 7 p.m. right here on KFAX. He is Dr. Jerry Buckner. And Dr. Buckner, as always, great to see you. Craig, it's always a blessing to be in the studio live. And uh, oftentimes, you generally interview me by phone, and so I said I better make a commitment to come in here so I can show a sense of humility. (laughs) (laughs) Humble thyself. (laughs) After after all, you know, I gave uh, birth from uh, your program to our program, and so we thank the Lord for you and the way God has used you throughout the years, and standing firm for the Word and the love of people, so we appreciate you and your program as well. Well, and thank you for taking the time out of your busy schedule to come on in, and uh, uh, spend some time going deep in God's words today, which is so critically important, you know, kind of as a foundation to our, our topic and our conversation. A lot of Christians have a very peripheral knowledge of their faith. Some even struggle with the ability to explain their faith to someone else. And no surprise that there's such a small margin of believers today that could even tell you that they've ever shared their faith, let alone led someone to Christ, because largely we... We really don't know what it is we believe or why we believe it. And so with that thought in mind, laying a stronger foundation, going deeper in God's Word, and one of the key things that you do every Saturday evening at 7 on Contending for the Faith is teaching people the importance of embracing, understanding the very fundamentals, the very pillars of our faith. And tonight we discuss one that I think is is so key and yet is um, so clouded in the minds of so many, and that is the topic of the Trinity. First, tell me, if you would, Dr. Buckner, how this came to the attention of you, that you would even write a book of uh, feeling that strong about this topic? That's a good uh, question, Craig. And I think the thing that has really put a burden on my heart regarding doing a book on this subject is because I have uh, traveled all over the, the the world pretty much and doing lectures for uh, various uh, denominations and organizations. And, and in the midst of doing uh, seminars and workshops, uh, I found that a lot of Christians, including even pastors, uh, are really ignorant when it comes to the essential doctrines of the historic Christian faith. And I've been to pastor's breakfasts, and I have uh, done uh, this workshop uh, on the Trinity to them. And uh, to my surprise, they didn't know. And I figure, so if the pastors don't know, then their congregations definitely don't know. So um, I really have had a conviction by the Holy Spirit to do a book on the essential doctrines of the historic Christian faith. And I think that there are five that is really, that stands out, even though I didn't interject this in the book. And and one is that we better know is uh, that Jesus is the only way. There's no way around that, that he's the only 
way. John 14, 6, Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. And then the Trinity is another essential doctrine. And then the deity of Christ, that he truly is God and man. And then the other one is the vicarious atonement, that uh, the scriptures let us, uh, let us know very clearly that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. And then the other one is the bodily resurrection, that Christ came back from the dead bodily. The Greek word for body is soma. And so those are the essential doctrines of the historic Christian faith right there in a nutshell. And because I've seen pastors not know this, especially the Trinity, I was convicted to do this. The curse of the church today is biblical illiteracy, and it parades itself in and out of the church. And and as uh, Amos once said, you know, there is a famine in the land, and he spoke of it not only regarding starvation, but a famine regarding the Word of God, and it's really real today in our churches. I heard it said recently by a preacher that we've even seen this uh, trend taking place in the pulpits of America today, where we've seen this paradigm shift from thus saith the Lord to, well, in my opinion, and a lot of that gets us into trouble, particularly on a topic like this, and and I, I, I want to take note, you referred to this as an essential Doctrine. Help us understand that, because a lot of Christians at the periphery would say, well, we understand that, that Christianity, like Judaism, is a monotheistic religion. We get into the details about God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and all of a sudden it gets a little bit murky. And oftentimes critics of this notion, like those within the Oneness Pentecostal movement, would say, well, wait a minute now, Dr. Buckner. We've gone through the entirety of the New Testament. Not once does the word Trinity appear in there. So how can we even believe that there's such a thing as the Trinity if the Bible doesn't specifically teach to this point? That's a very good question. And uh, the word Trinity is not in the Bible, the word itself, but the concept and the evidence is there. So this might be like the issue of abortion. We might say that abortion doesn't appear in the Bible either, and yet the concept of it in terms of it being against the law of God, taking of a life, and the value of life is certainly throughout Scripture. Very much so. And another two other words, it's not in the Bible, but the evidence and the concept is there, is the word rapture and also the word incarnation. So those are doctrines that we use all the time, and we use it theologically, but uh, the evidence is there. Now, Jehovah's Witnesses, I've been studying cults now for 40 years, and I consider myself an expert in the field of comparative religion and apologetics and the Jehovah's Witnesses say, well, you shouldn't believe in the Trinity because the word is not there. But they use the word theocratic kingdom, and that's not in the Bible. So because the word is not there doesn't mean that the evidence and the validity of the concept is there. And I think it's very important for us to understand when we use the word essential, we're saying there is no compromise. There is no sellout. We have to believe that. Uh, St. Augustine one time said, in the essentials, unity, in the non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, charity. So there are some things like baptism, you know, people do various forms of baptism, Uh, the communion, those are essential foundational uh, truths 
But when it comes to these areas that we're talking about tonight, uh, people are going to do those non-essential <clears throat> teachings and doctrines differently. But when it comes to these subjects like the Trinity, the deity of Christ, the bodily resurrection, the atonement, there is no compromise. There is no getting around. And matter of fact, Jesus made it so clear. There are, I would say, 23 times in the Johannian gospel, that is the gospel of John, that the word I am is used. And that is the divine title for Jesus. And so Jesus says in John 8 and 24, if you believe not that I am he, you will die in your sins. That's very clear. And Jesus was the one that spoke out of the burning bush back in the Old Testament in uh, Exodus 3 and 14. When Moses says, when I go before the children of Israel and they shall ask of me, what is your name? What shall I say? And then uh, God says to Moses in Hebrew, Yah, I am that I am. And then Jesus comes along later on in John 8 and 58 and says, before Abraham was, I am. And then he goes as far as saying, if you believe not that I am he, you will die in your sins. So these are no compromise. And yet we see a lot of churches compromising it. And you have to question if those are genuine churches. There certainly is the idea that, uh, you know, now we see through a glass darkly, there are aspects perhaps maybe they go down to let he that has an ear to hear hear what the Spirit of God is saying. And in this case, we're going to dive a little bit deeper because, as you point out, Dr. Buckner, while there is not the the clear-cut mention of the Trinity within the New Testament, there certainly is the concept of the revelation of same. We find not only in the Old Testament, but New Testament as well. And we'll dive through some of those specifics as we continue our conversation tonight. With us in studio, Dr. Jerry Buckner, host of Contending for the Faith, heard Saturday evenings at 7 p.m. right here on KFAX. It's a brand new book out called Biblical Propositions Supporting the Trinity. And we'll give you some details in a bit as to where you can obtain a copy for yourself. Back with more right after this. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We're back to our conversation with us tonight in studio is the host of Contending for the Faith, Dr. Jerry Buckner. He, of course, is an adjunct professor at Golden Gate Theological Seminary. He's broadcast Saturday evenings at 7 p.m. here on KFAX. We are tackling the topic of the Trinity on today's program. A critically important one, as Dr. Bunker outlined prior to the break, because it's one of the, the fundamental pillars of the faith, and yet one... Uh, Dr. Buckner, that that is obscure in the minds of of many people. There seems to be a degree of confusion over this. And yet, as you've been pointing out, if we just take the time to connect the dots, it really is, is all there, isn't it? And not just in the New Testament alone, but even in the Old Testament. Yes, absolutely. You find it in the Old Testament as well as the New Testament where, you know, you don't have to be a great logician to figure out that the Bible is very clear that uh, God has been communicated and he communicated himself as being one God. Uh, I take a great um, commitment to uh, meditation and I think that meditation leads to memorization as, as always. But in the Old Testament, God is called one God, Deuteronomy 6 and 4. Hero Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And then in the New Testament, he's called one God in First uh, Timothy 2 and 5. For there's one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And then you find also in James 2 and 19, thou believest that there is one God 
what you do well. The demons also believe and tremble. So it's very clear that God has communicated himself as one God, and yet that one God is called Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So three distinct persons, yet coexisting in unity, co-equal, co-eternal, and consubstantial. Exactly. I always put it this way, and I was mentored under Dr. Walter Martin, who started the Bible Answer Man program, and I had the privilege and opportunity to be blessed under his teaching. And he gave a definition that I don't think anybody else has really improved upon that. And let me give it to you. He says, within the nature of the one true God, there are three eternal, distinct persons who are called Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and they are co-equal, co-eternal, and co-existent. And the reason why we put distinction in there because of the fact that they are one in nature and essence ontologically, but they are three distinct persons, just like a husband and a wife, uh, they in marriage become one, but yet they are distinct as well. So, But when you deal with uh, cultic organizations, even going back to, I would say, to the third century, you had an organization known, a guy by the name of Sibelius, and he basically taught that there that God manifested himself in different modes and that sort of thing. And then he taught from there modalism. And that basically taught that Jesus at one time appeared as the Father in history, the Son, and Holy Spirit, and there is no distinction. We heard a breakdown one time suggesting that the example of water, ice, and vapor, steam, all three identical in in its composition is H2O, and yet in three distinctive forms. And that really more describes modalism, really doesn't have anything to do with helping us understand the Trinity. No, it doesn't. And uh, unless one says that there are three uh, elements, like uh, distinctive elements, and yet one substance. And identical which is, in nature in every case. Exactly. And so, so water can be a beautiful thing if we use it in that sense. But if we use it in the sense of the modalist, it becomes problematic. And today, the modalists today are people such as the Pentecostal Oneness Movement. And they will go as far as saying from Isaiah 9 and 6 that unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, the government shall be up on his shoulders, his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. So I know you're going to bring that up a little bit later on. I can hit you're on down that road right all now. Right, Take all it right. right. <laughs> all right. Well, the thing is, I've had people call in on the radio and say, well, if, if the Father is is called, if, if Jesus is called the Father, then does that not mean that he is actually the Father? Well, what we got to do is understand the Jewish mind. The Bible is a Jewish book, and you have to look at the Bible from the Jewish mind. And in the Jewish mind, the word father didn't always apply to always a father per se. Uh, for instance, uh, Abigail means, uh, she means father of lights. Well, this is a woman. Mm -hmm. So in the Hebrew mind, her name meant father. Paul was actually looked at as a father to Timothy and to Titus, but he was not their literal father. So in the mind of the Jewish mind, a father 
means someone who actually relates to somebody even on a spiritual plane as well. So Isaiah 9 and 6, Jesus actually is the father of eternity in the sense that he possesses control of eternity. He is from all eternity. And so when it says father of eternity, it doesn't mean literally that he's the father uh, of that contradicts the father in the Bible. It just simply means that that's the way the Jewish mind communicated. This also perhaps helps us understand the concept as we see Christ talked about both prophetically in the Old Testament and revealed in the New Testament that he was not created but rather begotten of the Father. It's an important distinction, is it not? It really is. And the word begotten is different from begat. Begat is talking about someone who was created. Begotten comes from the Greek word monogenes, and it simply means uh, one of a kind, unique from all eternity. So no one else has ever been called in the scriptures begotten one except Jesus Christ. And it doesn't mean he was begotten in the sense that he was created, but that he was from all eternity, and that's what the, it means in the Greek. In the beginning was the word Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, and then became flesh and dwelt amongst us. And dwelt among us. Talk a bit about the whole, the issue of monotheism, if you would, for a moment. Some people kind of get stuck on this point because they say, well, Christianity, like Judaism, is a monotheistic religion, and yet we speak of God in three persons, the Trinity. H- how do we maintain the structure of a monotheistic approach to Christianity within the realm of the triune God? Well, that's a good question. Um, the Going back again to the Old Testament, God has uh, revealed himself as one God, but yet God has revealed himself in three eternal distinct persons. I think it's very clear from uh, Genesis 1 and 26 that God said, let us, you get the Hebrew plural there. So even though Deuteronomy 6 and 4 talks about the one God, yet in the Old Testament, you consistently get the either the plural us or we, for instance. Man created in our image. You created in our image. And then you have also uh, Genesis 11 and 7, where God says during the, the, the Tower of Babel, let us go down and confound their language that they may not understand one another. And then when you get into Isaiah chapter 6, you see that Isaiah was, the Lord was speaking to Isaiah and says, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And Isaiah says, here am I, Lord, send us. So even though the God is revealed as one God, he reveals himself also as three eternal distinct persons. So when we use the word monotheism, we're simply saying one God revealed in three eternal distinct persons. When we use the word polytheism, that's another word that's talking about a multitude of gods, like in Mormonism. They believe in many different gods. Hinduism. In Hinduism, and then even the Nation of Islam. I had Dr. Norman Geisler one time when I was doing a lecture, and uh, he came up to me afterwards, and he said, Dr. Buckner, do the black Muslims teach in more, in more than one god? I said, yes, they teach in a multitude of god, and every uh, black male can become a black god. And I said, so they believe in black polytheism, and he kind of got a, a laugh out of that, but it's reality. And then you have another word that's henotheism. You ever heard of that word before? No. Henotheism basically is the teaching that uh, you can uh, draw from many different gods, uh, but you got to pick one main god over those other gods. <laughs> 
Sounds you know. like a competition to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So we got this uh, serious problem where the devil, when he came into the Garden of Eden, people say that Mormonism w- really was the one that started uh, this polytheistic teaching and many gods. No, it started in the Garden of Eden when the enemy came to Eve and said, if you partake of this fruit, you will become as gods, knowing good and evil. So Satan really was the one who uh, instituted this, started it, and people have been following it ever since. Yeah. We're going to take a time out. When we come back, we'll continue our conversation with Dr. Jerry Buckner. A look tonight at the Trinity, biblical propositions supporting, saying, when we come back, dive through some of the aspects of this, the, the, the notion of the identical essence or nature of God, not merely similar in nature. That is our conversation on the Trinity with Dr. Jerry Buckner continues on this edition of Lifeline. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. <laughs> 